Nutrition for jiu-jitsu is nutrition for sports performance. As the old adage goes, you can't out-train a bad diet. While there is some truth to this, it doesn't tell the whole story. In this episode, we'll be discussing what makes jiu-jitsu specific nutrition different, calories and macronutrients, body composition for jiu-jitsu athletes, BMR and TDEE, calculating your macros, calorie counting alternatives, putting it all together, and some frequently asked questions at the end. Chapter one, what makes jiu-jitsu specific nutrition different? You may be wondering what makes jiu-jitsu nutrition different from eating a regular healthy diet. The biggest differences are that jiu-jitsu nutrition is sports performance nutrition. Whether it's for a hobbyist or a professional jiu-jitsu athlete, it's all about refueling the energy that you expend during jiu-jitsu and your training to support your jiu-jitsu. This is different from a regular healthy eating diet because the energy requirements, the protein requirements, and the carbohydrate requirements are generally much higher. But what's the difference between eating for jiu-jitsu versus eating for MMA, other full contact sports like hockey or rugby or American football? Well, not a lot. Sports performance nutrition is actually more dependent on the individual that is in question. It's more dependent on your individual goals, your requirements, your unique body composition, and all of the above. Whether or not you're trying to make weight for a competition, or maybe you're trying to fill up into the next weight bracket. Maybe you're trying to put on muscle. So the differences are more dependent on the individual rather than necessarily the sport. However, there are some common goals or some common categories that the vast majority of jiu-jitsu athletes and hobbyists alike fit into. So that is where the focus of this episode is going to be. Here are some common nutrition goals that a lot of jiu-jitsu players find themselves striving toward. Wanting to improve their performance through better nutrition. Wanting to use nutrition to help increase body mass and fill up into a higher weight bracket stack on muscle, or just increase size in general. Wanting to reduce body fat and lean down. Wanting to cut weight for a competition without having to go through a water cutting protocol. And simply wanting to learn better nutrition practices to live a healthier life. Regardless of which category you best relate to, there's something for you in this episode. Chapter 2, Calories and Macronutrients. We need to start with the basics of sports nutrition. If you're already across these categories, feel free to skip ahead, but you might pick up something along the way. Calories and kilojoules, the energy units. Let's talk about energy. In nutrition, energy is measured in the form of calories. A calorie is the amount of energy in the form of heat needed to raise the temperature of one kilogram of water by one degree Celsius. When we talk about calories in food, we're actually referring to kilocalories, but that is a subtle nuance difference and most people just refer to them as calories, so I'm going to stick with that vernacular throughout this episode. If you operate with kilocalories under the metric system, you can convert calories to kilocalories by simply multiplying one calorie by 4.184. That will convert the calories into kilojoules. Macronutrients, the big three. Okay, let's talk about macronutrients or macros for short. There are three macronutrients. They are protein, carbohydrates, and lipids, otherwise known as fats. These are the nutrients that make up the energy in your food. So this is where the calories come from. One lipid equals nine calories per one gram of fat. One gram of fat equals nine calories. One gram of protein equals four calories and one gram of carbohydrate also equals four calories. So fats are by far the most calorie-dense food. When you hear that term calorie-dense, it simply means that there's a lot of calories relative to the volume of food. If we compare something like peanut butter to a garden salad, the peanut butter is going to be vastly more calorie-dense, and that is because majority of it is made up of lipids or fats, which is nine calories per one gram. Whereas if we compare it to a garden salad, the vast majority of the energy coming from that salad is in the form of carbohydrate, but there's not a lot of carbohydrate per gram of salad. 
So there is a low amount of carbohydrate, lots of fiber in there as well. So when we talk about caloric density, think about it in terms of the macronutrients that's contained within that food. Protein, the muscle builder. Protein is the cornerstone of muscle growth and repair. It's also the most satiating macronutrient. So when you compare eating lots and lots of protein in the form of maybe meat versus eating something that's high in fat and sugar or fat and carbohydrate, you're going to fill up much more quickly on the protein source regardless of whether or not it is higher in calories. So you may eat a steak, which is lower in calories than a bowl of pasta, but you'll fill up on the steak much faster than you will on the pasta. And that's because protein is satiating or filling. It's also the macronutrient that requires the most energy spent by your body to digest it. So the food that we eat, it's not just energy in, energy out in a sense. When you eat food, your body is required to burn energy to digest and process that food. This is known as the thermic effect of food or the TEF. The thermic effect of protein is 20 to 30%, meaning that if you ate 100 calories worth of protein, your body would need to burn 20 to 30 calories of that 100 to digest that protein. Compared with carbohydrate and fats, that's pretty high. Whereas carbohydrates, the thermic effect of food or the TEF is only 5 to 10%, whereas fats, it's 0 to 3%. So when we look at each of these macronutrients, protein is by far the most demanding for your body to process and digest, whereas fats is the lowest requirement, making it the best storage of energy. But this can be a downside, particularly in the modern era with the typical standard American diet that is quite high in fats and carbohydrates. Protein is absolutely crucial for athletes and jiu-jitsu athletes are no exception to this. Protein is the primary macronutrient responsible for muscle growth and muscle repair. How much protein do you actually need? Well, I'm going to be discussing that later on in the episode, but I want to cover some common protein myths. Protein is sometimes vilified where people will say things like too much protein will damage your kidneys or high protein will damage your kidneys and it's bad for your kidneys, so you should eat less protein. This is a complete myth. The only evidence to suggest that a high protein diet will affect your kidneys is if you already have renal failure, meaning you already have kidney damage or kidney failure. For those clinical populations, yes, too much protein can be harmful, but Too much protein or high levels of protein, I should say, will not cause kidney damage or kidney failure. This myth comes from the fact that high levels of protein consumption are associated with a high GFR, or which is known as the glomerular filtration rate, which is the filtration rate of your kidneys. It's ironic in a way that the high level of GFR observed with high protein diets is associated with kidney damage, but all this means is that your kidneys are doing what they're supposed to do. It means that your kidneys are properly filtrating and processing the high levels of protein in your diet. It does not mean that it's causing kidney damage and it is not a sign of kidney damage. It's actually the inverse. It means that your kidneys are healthy and they're, it's, it's not a sign of strain. It's a sign of health. So the only time you need to be concerned with a high level of protein in your diet is if you have pre-existing kidney damage. It will not cause kidney damage by itself. Carbohydrates, the energy store. Carbohydrates store energy in your body in the form of glycogen. There are two predominant forms of carbohydrates that you've probably heard of. They're simple carbs and complex carbs. Simple carbohydrates are things like monosaccharides or disaccharides that are a single sugar molecule or two molecules bound together. An example of that is fructose, which is a monosaccharide found in fruit and sucrose, which is a disaccharide, meaning two molecules found together, which is a glucose molecule combined with a fructose molecule. Complex carbohydrates are found in things like grains and starches. The reason they're referred to as complex is because they're larger, much more complex in their structure compared with simple carbohydrate. The reason that complex carbs are what we refer to as the slow drip carbs or the carbs that will give you 
energy throughout the day is because it takes a longer time for your body to break up the molecules or the bonds between the sugar molecules and gain access to the carbohydrates or gain access to those sugar molecules. So that's why they're referred to as complex and that's why they're slow energy slow drip feed of energy type carbohydrates. Think of it again as a web of complex structure that it takes your body a long time to break down. Compare that to simple carbs where there's only there's no bond at all in the form of monosaccharides or there's only one bond that your body needs to break in the form of disaccharides. You can gain access to those sugar molecules much, much faster. So that's why it's simple versus complex carbohydrates. Simple carbohydrates are often demonized. They're often the bad guy in the story. But simple carbohydrates are not necessarily bad just because they're simple carbs. They can actually be very beneficial, particularly when we combine them with nutrient timing. Take, for example, a scenario where you've just finished a very hard jiu-jitsu session and you want to refuel after the high energy demands required of you for training jiu-jitsu. Well, a good protocol in terms of nutrient timing would be to combine simple carbohydrates with a fast-acting, fast-absorbing protein source. And in this case, the simple carbohydrates will help to shuttle the protein into your muscle. So that is where simple carbs can come to your advantage. Whereas complex carbs, you may want to have them early on in the day, whereas complex carbs can help to reduce the energy bonk that you may feel if you only ate simple carbs. For example, you may swap out your simple carbohydrates for a complex carbohydrate for lunchtime so you don't have that energy crash in the early afternoon. And on the subject of carbohydrate, how much carbs do you need to eat? Well, we are going to discuss that later on in the episode, but I find that the vast majority of jiu-jitsu athletes are actually under eating carbohydrate. Carbohydrate is demonized a lot in the media, and that is because carbohydrate is associated with sugar. And having high levels of sugar in your diet may not necessarily be a good thing, particularly if it's in the form of high fructose corn syrup or other forms of sugars that have been shown to be detrimental to your health and lead to obesity and other conditions. But in the case of sports performance, higher carbohydrate can help to replenish your glycogen stores in between your sessions. And it is very important to have adequate amounts of carbohydrate in your diet. So we will be discussing the details of carbohydrate consumption later on the episode, but I just want to cover it here that carbohydrates aren't necessarily a bad thing. Carbohydrates are not the enemy. Finally, let's tackle lipids, better known as fats. So I'll just be referring to them as fats from here on out. Fats are not the villain that they're made out to be. Now, I mentioned carbohydrates are the villain, but previous to that, it was all about fats, particularly saturated fat and cholesterol. Eating fat will not make you fat. Eating fat does not automatically lead to fat gain. There's a lot of different reasons why this was thought of as the case. But one of the predominant reasons is, as I mentioned in the introduction of the chapter, that fats are nine calories per gram, which is very calorically dense. So if you eat 100 grams worth of fat versus 100 grams worth of protein, it will be 900 calories in the case of fats versus 400 calories in the case of protein. So that is why they're vilified or they have been villainized, if you will, in the past. There's also been some debunked research that was published to show that saturated fat leads to heart conditions, heart disease, obesity, which has been disproven now. So yes, if you eat a shitload of fat, you're going to get fat because you're eating a shitload of calories, not necessarily because you're eating a shitload of fat. Healthy fats are an essential part of your diet. Your fats are used in the production of hormones. They're used in the production of your cell membrane. So fats are essential for your diet, particularly in terms of hormone production. Remember, Calories are a unit of energy. Understanding them is key to managing your diet. Macronutrients are protein, carbohydrates, and fats, and each plays a unique role in fueling and building your body. Don't fear any of the macronutrients, whether it's fat because of saturated fat lies, protein because of the kidney damage lie, and carbohydrates because of the high prevalence of high fructose corn syrup in standard American diets. These macronutrients, when eaten in their right form, are your allies and will help to improve your health and fitness. None of the three macronutrients are your enemies. Chapter three, body composition for jiu-jitsu athletes. 
Understanding your body composition is a crucial part of managing your nutrition plan or managing your diet for jiu-jitsu performance. Body composition is the balance between fat mass, lean muscle mass, and fat-free mass in your body. When we're talking about body composition, it's more than just the weight on the scales. The weight that you see when you step on a set of scales only tells one part of the story. Unless you are in the population that is obese and you need to reduce your weight, then the weight on the scales can be very misleading because body composition takes into account not just your fat mass, but also your lean mass, your fat-free mass, and your, even your bone density comes into account when you're talking about body composition. But for the purposes of today, we're going to be talking about body composition insofar as your fat-free mass, your fat mass, and your lean muscle mass. Those are the three that we're going to be most interested in. Let's talk about body fat percentage or your fat mass in your body. For jiu-jitsu athletes or for combat sport athletes, they have the vast majority of elite combat sport athletes fall within the category of 8 to 12%. Now, I would say that a healthy range for a combat sport athlete, including jiu-jitsu, is somewhere in the neighborhood of 8 to 15%. If you are above 15%, it may be time to cut weight to get to a healthy range. And if you are below 8%, you are far too lean. You need to increase up to at least 8%. Now, I'm not saying that everyone should be 8 or 9% in the single digits. That is incredibly unrealistic. If you were 8% body fat, either you're very, very lean, but if you're 8% body fat and muscular, you're ready to step onto a bodybuilding stage. Back in the day, I used to be an amateur bodybuilder. And when I stepped on stage for the first time, I got a body assessment and it determined that I was just below 7% body fat, incredibly, incredibly lean. If you're that lean, you're probably too lean. You're going to run out of energy very quickly. But all this is to say that you need to consider your body fat percentage in your body, not just the weight on the scales. Assessing your body composition. There are many different ways to assess your body composition. Some are more accurate than others, but from a practical standpoint, I'm going to give you a laundry list of different ways of assessing your body composition and you can choose which one is most appropriate. But first we need to talk about BMI. BMI is an acronym that stands for Body Mass Index. It is a tool to determine whether you are underweight, on the ideal weight for your age and height or overweight but it is a very, very simplistic equation. It takes into account your height and your weight, and that's pretty much it. BMI is misleading because it does not take into account your lean muscle mass. So a lot of the time, even someone of my size where I'm not overly muscular, like I'm not a Mr. Olympia type, I come up on the BMI scale as being overweight or in an unhealthy weight range because my muscle mass is high relative to the general population. So it's it's not true though. I'm not at an unhealthy weight. I'm at a very healthy weight because of my body composition. I have a low body fat percentage, a high amount of lean muscle mass for my, my age and my height and my weight. But on the BMI scale, I'm unhealthy. That is why BMI is un inaccurate for athletes because a lot of athletes have a lot higher muscle mass. BMI is accurate and is a valuable tool when assessing someone to determine whether or not they are in the obese category or morbidly obese or whatever, or overweight. If you are someone that fits the standard mold or the average, if you will, of someone's walking down the street, maybe you're skinny fat and you have a high level of fat percentage, but you're not necessarily muscular. If you do a BMI assessment and it tells you that you're overweight, I'd probably listen to that because you know, you're not carrying a significant amount of muscle, which will skew the BMI data. But so long as you don't have a metric that is skewing the data, like a high muscle mass, BMI can be pretty accurate. So it shouldn't be thrown out. Uh, but for our purposes today, it's not recommended. Skin fold measurements. Now, skin fold measurements are fairly precise and depending on the skill of the user. It basically is the process of using calipers to measure different skin fold sites all around the body. Depending on the protocol that's used and how accurate the protocol that's being used, it can be pretty accurate to determine your body fat percentage. So the idea is you're doing skin pinches around the body at multiple different sites and the thickness of that skin pinch determines your, or it can be used to calculate your body fat percentage. 
if you're interested in doing this form of assessment, I would advise against just buying calipers online and giving a, a crack unless you want to. I would advise seeking out a professional to do the assessment for you. Bioelectrical impedance analysis. Bioelectrical impedance analysis or BIA. BIA or a BIA machine is what you may know as a DEXA scan. Now, it is slightly different and less accurate than a proper DEXA scan, but sometimes they're conflated and combined and, and they're referred to as a DEXA scan. A BIA machine is what you commonly find at weight loss clinics. You'll find them at gyms. You'll find them lots of different places where you can pay money to get a body scan. A common brand and one that I've used the most is something called InBody Scan. This is what I recommend just because I have the most experience with them and I know that they're fairly accurate. This is an example of a BIA machine. A lot of the time people call this DEXA, but DEXA is uh, more accurate and is a bit different and is a lot more expensive of a machine. A lot of facilities like gyms, weight loss clinics will actually offer you a BIA scan in the form of an in-body scan for free, but you can pay a small fee. In a lot of cases, they're very easy to find. You can find them pretty much everywhere and it will cost you anywhere from 20 to 50 Australian dollars. Not sure what they go for in the uh, United States, but it'll be fairly similar. There are some best practices to follow when you're getting a BIA machine scan. Now, a lot of the time when you book in, they will advise you of these, but sometimes I find that they don't. They just let you rock up and jump on. And how you approach the scan and how you prepare for it will actually determine the accuracy of the scan. To ensure the accuracy of the scan, this is what I recommend. Avoid alcohol 48 hours before. Refrain from intense exercise 12 hours before. Do not eat or drink caffeine, especially four hours before your scan. Stay hydrated, but make sure you go to the toilet as in empty your bladder 30 minutes before the test. Don't take any diuretics so long as it's medically cleared and conduct the test in barefoot because the, the way the scan works is it sends a pulse up your body through your feet into your hands when you're holding the diodes and that's how it determines your body composition. Postpone the test if you're sick or you're feeling ill at all because this can skew the hydration levels. At-home scales. The scales that I'm talking about here are the Fitbit scales, any sort of weight loss scales that they have metal diodes that you stand on barefoot and they give you a body fat percentage reading. Now, these are a form of BIA. They are technically bioimpedance analysis. It uses similar technology, but it's just very, very inaccurate because the scales that you spend $200 on or whatever to have in your bathroom are not going to come anywhere close to the accuracy of an in-body scan machine, which, you know, if for context, the in-body scans go for like $20,000 plus for a set of those scales versus the, you know, $50 to $200 bathroom scales. The accuracy is going to be chalk and cheese. But what you can use those at-home bathroom scales for in terms of your body fat assessment is use it as a trend setter. Use it as a way to assess the trend between day to day, between maybe one month to the other to see if your body fat percentage is going down. We're not actually concerned with the exact number because that exact number is going to be inaccurate. What we are concerned with is the trend. It's the same when I talk about using your at-home scales to measure your body weight. Now, the actual number I'm not super concerned with, I'm more concerned with the trend. Is your body weight going down? Is it going up? And the same can be said about using those at-home BIA scan scales to track the trends. We're not concerned with the number because it's inaccurate. We're concerned with the trend. Is it going up? Is it going down? Is it staying the same? It's important to note that your body composition will change. It is not a stagnant, fixated thing. Your body fat percentage will also change throughout the year. I find that a lot of athletes that are in their off season, they have an increase of body fat percentage. There's lots of different reasons for that. Sometimes it's intentional. Whereas when they're on season, their body fat percentage will reduce and their muscle mass may increase slightly. Now, it depends on what you're doing in terms of your training, your periodization of your training, your nutrition, but your body composition will change and reflect what you're actually doing day to day. If you want to know if you should cut weight or if you should increase weight, this is what I want to tell you. If your body fat percentage is greater than 15%, it's time to cut weight. 
And that is for health reasons. It's not healthy to be much greater than 15% body fat percentage for the vast majority of people. Particularly if you're north of 20%, meaning greater than 20%, you definitely want to start cutting fat for health reasons. Likewise, if you are in the single digits or even below 8% body fat percentage, you want to increase. You want to increase your body fat. You want to start eating more and put on weight. That is for, again, health reasons, and it will have a flow on effect on your performance. Now, if you're in that sweet spot, anywhere from 8 to 15%, you can practically just stay there and you would only want to reduce or increase depending on your goals. Maybe it's for aesthetic reasons. Maybe it's to increase weight to fill up into a bracket or maybe it's to reduce weight to lower down in to be at the top of the weight bracket below. So if you're in that case, if you're basically you're in the healthy weight range in terms of your body fat percentage and you want to fluctuate your weight for performance goals or to go up or down in the weight brackets, then you can look to bulk, cut, or maintain for performance. So those are practically your three options with your nutrition. You can go for maintenance, meaning eat for performance, but maintaining your body composition, your body weight. You can go to bulk, meaning to increase, or you can go to cut, meaning eat in a calorie deficit to reduce weight to the bracket below. Chapter four, BMR and TDEE. BMR is basal metabolic rate. TDEE is total daily energy expenditure. BMR is the amount of calories that your body burns at rest, meaning everything aside, if you were just to lay in bed all day, not move a muscle, that is how many calories your body would need to burn to keep you alive. Your TDEE takes into consideration your BMR and a whole bunch of other factors like thermic effect of food that we mentioned earlier and your activity levels, your movement throughout the day, all these other factors to create a figure that is the amount of calories that you burn per day, including your activity. So it's your total daily energy expenditure or the amount of calories that you burn in one day. There are many different ways to calculate both your TDEE and your BMR, but to simplify things, I'm going to point you in the direction of an online calculator that I find is fairly accurate called tdeecalculator.net. All you do is you go on to that website, you plug in your metrics, it will plug in your age, your gender, your weight, your activity level, and it will spit out your BMR and your TDEE. This will get you moving in the right direction. Now, it's not super accurate, but it gets you into a ballpark. They've done research on these type of calculations for BMR and TDEE, and what they find is depending on the individual, they can be out as in inaccurate by up to 20%, which may seem like a lot, but when you consider that it is a starting point and it is a ballpark figure to get you moving in the right direction, then you know you can take it with a grain of salt and manipulate it as required. But why is this relevant? Why do we need to know our TDEE? Well, it helps to determine how many calories you need to be consuming each day. For example, if you wanted to maintain your weight, you would simply eat whatever calories are spat out on your TDEE. You would assess your weight changes, the trend of your weight changes, and then adjust accordingly. Because remember, your calculations can be out by up to 20% or, or greater in some cases. If you want to cut weight, you would take your TDEE and you would subtract a calorie deficit from this figure. Now, depending on you as an individual, how quickly you want to cut weight, what your body composition is, and your activity level will depend on how significant your calorie deficit should be. But a good starting place is somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 calories. So if you subtract 250 calories from your total daily energy expenditure figure, then you should be losing weight so long as your TDEE is accurate. If you eat that amount of calories, then you would go ahead and assess your weight change. If you're not losing weight or not losing it as fast as you've calculated, you would then create a greater calorie deficit by subtracting more calories. Maybe you bump it up to 500 calorie deficit and then you go back to assessing. Likewise, if you want to increase weight, you simply add calories to your total daily energy expenditure. You take your TDEE figure and then you would add 250 calories in intervals to see if you're increasing weight. Now, there are more advanced figures and more advanced ways to determine the exact calories to meet an exact weight goal in exact period and frame of time, but that is beyond the scope of what I'm trying to communicate in this episode. If you're interested in that, leave me a comment and we can discuss it. Let's talk about the buzz term, body recomposition. This term is very popular in the bodybuilding world. And the concept is that you 
can reduce fat at the same time as increasing muscle or recompositing your body to be a more favorable body composition with more muscle, less fat. This is possible. They've shown in research that it can be done. It's incredibly difficult though and requires very precise nutrition management, good genetics, and a appropriate training protocol as well. For the vast majority of jiu-jitsu athletes, this isn't really the goal. So I won't be spending much time. Just wanted to let you know that the concept of body recomposition does exist. Chapter five, calculating your macronutrients. In this section, we're going to be discussing how to calculate your macros. I mentioned in a previous chapter, that this is where I'm going to be giving you the recommendations of how much protein, carbohydrate, and fats you need to be consuming. When calculating your macronutrients, I highly recommend that you start with protein. Before we calculate your macronutrients, you need to have your goal calories in mind. I mentioned in the previous chapter about calculating your TDEE, and then that will get you your body maintenance calories, your bulking calories, and your cutting calories. Now, depending on what you actually want to do, do you want to maintain your weight for performance? Do you want to increase your weight or do you want to cut weight? That will give you your goal calories. Based on that figure, you need that figure first, and then we can calculate your macronutrients. Because remember, it's the macronutrients that make up the calories. If we don't have your goal calories, we cannot calculate your macronutrients. You cannot reverse engineer it. My protein recommendations come from the research and the position stance published by the ISSN, which is the International Society of Sports Nutrition, which I'm a member of. I'm an ISSN SNS, which is a sports nutrition specialist. In the ISSN's position stand on protein and exercise, they state that the overall daily protein intake in the range of 1.4 to 2 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight per day is sufficient for most exercising individuals and falls in line with the acceptable macronutrient distribution range published by the Institute of Medicine. They go on to say that three grams of protein per kilogram of body weight may have positive effects on body composition for exercising individuals to promote muscle protein synthesis and reduce fat mass. All this means that is they recommend between 1.4 and 2 grams of protein per kilogram of body mass and up to three grams has been shown to be beneficial. They also go on to state that there are some individuals that will benefit more from having their protein calculated on their fat-free mass. And that is generally for overweight and obese population because if you take someone that is overweight or obese and simply plug and play and put them into the two grams per kilogram of body weight, this figure will be way too high. It will be a huge amount of protein and much above what they can actually utilize in the body. So that is why they opt to go for a lean muscle mass calculation for those people. Unless you fall into that category, you can simply utilize the 1.4 to 2 grams per kilogram of body mass. But for today's example, we'll be utilizing the 2 grams per kilogram of body weight. So this is how you do it. Step one, take your total body weight, multiply it by two. As an example, let's go with 82 kilograms times by two grams of protein equals 162 grams of protein per day. Step two is to multiply that amount of protein by four to get the total number of calories. You'll need to save this number for later. So in this case, it's 162 times by four equals 656. Step two is calculating your fats. Now that we have our protein recommendations, we can now calculate our fats. Now it's important that you understand that having a very low fat diet can be detrimental to your health because fat is an essential part of your hormone production and your cell membranes. So you need to ensure that you're not only eating fat, but eating healthy fats. Your fat intake should be anywhere in the neighborhood of a minimum of 20% to an optimal of 30% of your total calories. In this example, we're going to be utilizing the 30% figure. So this is how we do it. Take your total calorie intake, which is your TDEE or your goal calories, and multiply it by 0.3. This will give us our fat intake. For example, let's assume that my goal calories are 3,400 calories per day. 3,400 times by 0.3 is 1,020. We then divide this number by nine. This gives us 113. We just rounded off to the nearest gram. You can then refine this calculation by timesing it by nine again to account for the rounding. In this case, 113 by nine is 1,017 calories of fat in our 
macronutrient calculation. Write this down next to your protein calculation from the previous step because we'll need it for the final stage. As I mentioned in the macronutrient section of this episode, carbohydrates are essential for sports performance. It is recommended that combat sport athletes have a carbohydrate intake of around about 50% of their total calories or higher. In some cases, it may be lower, but this will depend on you as an individual, what your goal calories are, if you're cutting, bulking, etc. So to take that into account, I highly recommend working with a professional. But for now, the way we get to our carbohydrate intake is we're going to take the protein figure that we wrote down in step one, the fat calculation that we wrote down in step two, and then we subtract those from our goal calories, and that gives us the remainder of carbohydrates. So let's go through the example. Our total calories from protein from the first step was 656. Our total calories from the fat calculation was 1,017. That gives us a total of 1,673 calories. You then simply subtract this from your goal calories. In our case, our goal calories was 3,400. Subtract 1,673, we get 1,727 calories. We simply divide this number by four to get our amount of grams in carbohydrate because there are four calories to one gram of carbohydrate. So in this case, we have 1,727 divided by four equals 432. We simply round this off to the nearest gram and then we can multiply it by four again, like we did with the fats to get a more accurate number. So in this case, because it is 432 grams, we're gonna multiply that out by four and technically we get 1,728 grams. But you don't really need to do that if you don't want. Now we're not quite done. The final step is to then figure out what percentage of our carbohydrate calories is making up our total calorie intake. And this is to double check and see what percentage of our total calories are coming from carbs. So the way you do this is you take the calories that we just calculated for your carbohydrate. Remember, in our case, it was 1,728 and you divide that by your goal calories or your total calories. And that is 1,728 divided by 3,400. And that will give you a decimal. In this case, 0.51. You simply multiply that by 100 to get a percentage. So it's 51%. Therefore, the total carbohydrate intake that we've just calculated is 51% of our total calories. Now I mentioned that you want it to be around that 50% mark, so it's perfect. You want to aim for your total calories coming from carbohydrate being between that 40 to 60%. In other sports, they require higher carbohydrate consumption, but for our purposes, 40 to 60% is sufficient. Let's do a very quick recap on what we've covered so that there's no confusion. To calculate your macronutrients, you first need your goal calories. This is based off your TDEE. First step is to calculate your protein. I recommend going with two grams per kilogram of body weight. Your second step is to calculate your fats. Start with 30%, but you can be a minimum of 20%, maximum of around 40% of your total calories coming from fats. Finally, you take your total calories coming from protein and your total calories coming from fats that you just calculated, subtract that from your goal calories and the remainder gives you your total calories coming from carbohydrate. Divide it by four to get your carbohydrate figure. This is simply a starting point. Once you have your macronutrients, it's not going to magically formulate itself into a nutrition plan for you. There's so many things that we haven't spoken about that are important for nutrition, like nutrient timing, the different types of carbohydrates, different types of fats, the different types of protein sources even, and the different qualities of protein that you're going to get from different sources, protein timing, glycogen replenishment, hydration protocols. There's so many other things that come into play when we talk about sports nutrition. But this is a very, very surface level introduction into calculating your macronutrients. Now, a lot of people out there, yes, you're going to calculate your macronutrients, but it's hard to know what to do with that figure. You have your macros. Now you can download an app on your phone, like MyFitnessPal, to help you formulate a nutrition plan like that. But it requires a fair amount of experience and tinkering and research into how to actually go about that. You can also go online and Google free nutrition plans. Be wary of the sources though. 
where you get them from and find one that closely matches the macronutrients that you just calculated. That's another option. And another option is seeking out a professional to help you formulate a nutrition plan, but they'll probably calculate your macros for you. This is not necessarily easy, but the process is simple. Chapter six, calorie counting alternatives. So if you've reached this point, you've listened to each of the chapters in this episode and you're not convinced, you don't really want to count your calories, you don't want to calculate your macros, or maybe you did go through the process for shits and giggles, you got the number and you're like, well, I don't know what to do with this. It's a pretty common reaction and it's totally fine. In this chapter, I'm going to be discussing some alternatives to calorie counting to still get as much benefit out of your nutrition for your sports performance as possible. Option one, set and adjust. The set and adjust method is a little bit of a cop-out because it does require you to go through the processes that I've outlined in the episode so far, do all the steps, formulate your own nutrition plan as the set, and then adjust it, meaning that you have a nutrition plan, maybe you found or whatever, it doesn't matter, and you eat like that religiously, like you're weighing all your food, following the nutrition plan as you understand it, and then after you've learned how to follow the plan, then you can just sort of wing it from there and adjust as required. And what I mean by that is if you follow a nutrition plan for a few weeks, you'll get an understanding of the ballpark of what you need to be eating and what that food looks like, what the the serving size looks like, what the types of foods that you're eating that work well with you, the amount of carbohydrates, the amount of fats, the amount of protein. And then you can sort of wing it from there. You can set and adjust, meaning that you don't need to keep counting and weighing all your food. You sort of ballpark, you monitor your weight to see if your weight's going up, going down. You monitor your performance, seeing if you get tired in the afternoon or if you're bonking during your sessions, meaning you're not, uh, you don't have a, a enough carbohydrates. You can sort of feel it out from there. It does require a little bit of understanding your body and listening to your body, if I can throw that cliche term around. So it may not be an appropriate option for many people, but this is my preferred approach. This is how I personally approach my nutrition. I don't weigh all my food. I haven't done that in a long time. Every now and then I'll go back and do a check-in, if you will. I will formulate myself a nutrition plan. I'll follow it closely. And then it's sort of like a re readjusting process, a realign and then go from there. And it works very well for me because I have many years of experience doing this exact protocol. Option two is a more practical option and it is using meal delivery services. Meal delivery services are very hit and miss. Some of them are very good and some of them are quite shit. Some of them are full of high levels of sodium, high levels of sugar, which you need to be aware of. So yeah, you're hitting your macro and calorie goals, but the way you're doing it is not necessarily healthy. Now, as an analogy, technically speaking, if you're following the old like bodybuilder approach of if it fits your macros that you may have seen, which basically means that you can eat anything as long as it fits your macros. Think of it like eating McDonald's. So long as you hit your protein, carbs, and fat intake, then you know it's, it's good to go. But that will leave you feeling pretty ill and uh, it will not be healthy for you at all. It's the same can be said about these meal delivery services, albeit they're probably much healthier than eating takeaway in most cases. But what you do is you get a meal delivery service that enables you or gives you your calorie and macronutrient uh, intake for each food. And you try to structure it so it closely fits the macros that you calculated in the previous steps. Option three, the guiding principles approach. This option is a little bit more conceptual. Think about this option as, hey, I'm someone that I'm not prepared to go with a meal delivery service. Maybe I can't afford it. I'm not prepared to follow a nutrition plan. I, I just don't want to do that. Or I eat with my family and it's not practical. Or you just couldn't be bothered, which let's face it, is a, a lot of people. This approach, however, is the guiding principles approach, meaning take these healthy eating principles or these sports nutrition eating principles, if you will, and try to implement them as best you can because doing something is better than doing nothing. One, choose healthy alternatives and the healthy options of foods wherever possible. Maintain an awareness of whether you are in a calorie surplus or a calorie deficit or calorie maintenance. You can do this by weighing yourself once a week and assessing your body weight trends. Prioritize protein intake. Try to eat high quality protein and carbohydrate after your training sessions to ensure you're utilizing glycogen replenishment and sufficient protein to start the muscle protein repair process. 
eat healthy fats, try and get in as much omega-3s and monounsaturated fats as you can and have adequate carbohydrate intake. As I mentioned, a lot of people are actually under eating carbohydrates for sports performance. Chapter seven, putting it all together. So far in this episode, we have covered a lot of information. You may be confused. We have skimmed over some topics. We have gone deep on some. We have emphasized some areas and neglected others. But in this chapter, I want to try and consolidate everything, put it together so you can understand and have some key takeaways from this episode. Creating your nutrition plan. Step one, calculate your TDEE. Utilize the tools available at tdecalculator.net, plug and play your information, and that will give you your total daily energy expenditure. Step two, set your calorie goal. For weight loss, subtract 250 to 500 calories from your TDEE. For muscle gain or bulking, add 250 to 1,000 calories to your TDEE. For maintenance, stick with your TDEE. Regardless of whether you're cutting, bulking, or maintaining, Assess your weight each and every week to determine your weight trends. Is it going up? Is it going down? Is it staying the same? Step three, determine your protein intake. Aim for 1.4 to 2 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight per day. For people that are in the overweight or obese categories, you may want to go with your lean body mass figure. Step four, calculate your fat intake. Allocate a percentage of your fat intake anywhere from 20 to 40%. I recommend you start with 30%. Step five, calculate your carbohydrate intake. After setting your calories for protein and fat, allocate the remaining calories to carbohydrate. Remember, one gram of carbohydrate equals four calories. Final considerations, tracking your progress. Monitor your body's response to your nutrition plan by regularly checking your weight once per week. And if possible, check your body composition utilizing any of the body composition methods outlined in chapter three. Food quality. Choose nutrient-dense foods that meet your macronutrient targets. Remember that if you follow, if it fits your macros, technically you can eat McDonald's and you'll still hit your macronutrient target. It's all about health and performance. So try and prioritize healthy foods. Chapter eight, frequently asked questions. This chapter is dedicated to answering some frequently asked questions that you may have at this point. Now, there is a lot of information that I left out in this episode. If you want to learn more about sports nutrition, specifically as it relates to jujitsu performance, then check out BJJ Strong Online and go to the Brain Gains and Resources section. There is a full nutrition course, which goes into much more detail than I was able to go into in this episode including downloadable PDFs, quizzes to check your knowledge, and so much more. Check it out at bjjstrongonline.com. Will eating more frequent smaller meals throughout the day increase my metabolic rate? The simple answer to this is no. Increasing small frequent meals has not been shown in any research to increase your metabolic rate. What this can do though, is it can help to alleviate some hunger symptoms when you're following a very strict calorie deficit nutrition plan. Will spreading protein throughout the day assist with cutting? Yes, this has been shown in the research that evenly distributing protein throughout the day can help to preserve lean muscle mass when in a calorie deficit. Does intermittent fasting help to lose weight? Intermittent fasting can actually help to lose weight. The reason for this is because it condenses your eating window, which simulates or enforces, if you will, a calorie deficit on the intermittent faster. Intermittent fasting can also help to reduce your appetite between meals, again, by condensing that eating period and can help with hunger, which is associated with a calorie deficit nutrition plan. Should you train while fasted? Training while fasted will actually compromise your performance. So if you want to get the absolute most out of your training program and out of your training, I recommend that you do not train fasted, especially for high intensity training like jujitsu or hit cardio, or even lifting weights. However, if your goal is purely fat loss, then training while fasted in the form of doing some form of low intensity endurance cardio can help to promote more fat loss. So it depends on your priorities and it depends on your goals. 
Is it realistic to bulk while training jiu-jitsu? Absolutely. Bulking simply means eating in a calorie surplus. Is it realistic to be maintaining a high level of activity and eat in a calorie surplus? It would be harder because you have to eat more calories, but it is totally fine. It's totally realistic. And depending on where you're at in your jiu-jitsu journey, you may be in a calorie surplus already because the better you get at jiu-jitsu, the more efficient you are, the less calories you burn during jiu-jitsu. Therefore, it creates a calorie surplus. Hopefully that makes sense. Does nutrition change for people over 40? While caloric needs of an individual may decrease as you age, meaning that you need to eat less calories when you get older, the fundamental principles guiding your nutrition recommendations or sports nutrition recommendations do not change. What should you eat if you cannot avoid eating right before training due to your work schedule? If you cannot avoid eating before training, I recommend eating easily digestible foods. Go with something like a protein shake and a piece of fruit, or maybe some rice cakes, maybe a small meal of chicken and rice. That could really help. Is the keto diet a valid dieting strategy? Current research does not support the keto diet being superior to a high carbohydrate diet in terms of performance. Keto diets can be very valuable for people that have some form of autoimmune issues or other medical conditions that a keto diet has been shown to improve. But in terms of pure performance, a keto diet has not been shown to outperform a high carbohydrate diet at all. In some domains, a keto diet has been shown to perform as well as a high carbohydrate diet, but that is for endurance sports, not for high intensity sports like jujitsu. Are there foods or diets that are bad for different blood types? There has been no evidence to support that nutrition is dependent on blood types. This was a theory that has had a bit of research done on it and was hypothesized years ago, but it has since shown no substantial evidence to support the blood type theory. Nutrition for jujitsu is nutrition for sports performance. You can't out-train a bad diet. You don't need to calculate your macros if you don't want to. You don't necessarily need to weigh every gram or make sure you're only eating chicken, broccoli, and rice. That is not what this is about. By having some consideration to your nutrition, having some sort of thought about your nutrition and wanting to improve it, it will have an impact on the mats. It will help your performance you will start to feel better and even look better if that's your goal. In this episode, there was a lot of important nutrition concepts that we just didn't have time to cover and was maybe beyond the scope of what I wanted to address in this episode. If you want to learn more about nutrition for sports performance, specifically tailored to jiu-jitsu athletes, then check out my nutrition course available on BJJ Strong Online. BJJ Strong Online is my online performance platform. It is primarily focused on science-backed strength and conditioning programs for jiu-jitsu athletes to improve your mobility, your strength, your conditioning, and stay safe on the mats, reducing your risk of injury. But there is a brain gains and resources section, which covers a full nutrition course, a full strength and conditioning theory course, a recovery course, hydration, the works. If you want to learn more about sports nutrition specifically tailored for jiu-jitsu athletes, then you can check out the full nutrition course for jiu-jitsu available at BJJ Strong Online. It includes quizzes, downloadable resources, much more detail, and topics that we just couldn't cover here today. That again is available at bjjstrongonline.com. I'll put a link to it in the description of this episode. Hope you enjoyed. If you got something out of this, please feel free to like, subscribe, follow on your platform of choice and check out BJJ Strong Online if you want to level up your performance, get strong, get mobile and reduce your risk of injury on and off the mats. Thanks for watching.